0: We've been in the book of Acts for a while, but we're going to pause here uh, and begin preparing our hearts for Easter. And um, so if you've got a Bible with you, or if you want to borrow one of the red ones on a chair nearby, we are going to be looking at John chapter 6. If you are using the red Bible, John chapter 6 is on page 520. we're titling this series, uh, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. And here's why we're titling it this. In Matthew 16, Jesus has got this crowd of people following him. They're going from town to town because they've heard about Jesus, and they want to see for themselves who this person really is. And along the way, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he asks, who do the people say that I am? Imagine going down to Case Western University and asking students or faculty members, hey, who do you say that Jesus is? Or even going to the art museum and asking families, hey, who do you say that Jesus is? Or go across the street to Cleveland Clinic and ask doctors, nurses, and patients, who do you say Jesus is? you'll have more answers than people asked. And that was true for Jesus and the followers who were coming around him. But Peter stands up and says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it is on that proclamation that the entire history of the world has changed. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this is perhaps one of the most important questions for you to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Because it not only has the power to change the world, it has the power to change your life. And so for the next six weeks, including Good Friday, we're going to look at seven statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John, where he clearly tells us, who he is. And the first one we're looking at from John 6, Jesus says he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And he says this just after having done this wonderful miracle of feeding 5,000 people on the countryside with just a couple loaves of bread and fish. And the people are looking for more. And he comes to them and says, I am the bread of of life, As we look at this passage and this ensuing conversation that takes place between the crowds and Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus is inviting us to do three things. If you've got a bulletin and want to take notes, these are where I'm headed in my sermon. Jesus is inviting us to do three things. First, he's inviting us to hunger for him. Second, he's inviting us to rest in him. And third, he's inviting us to feast on him. Hunger for him, rest in him, and feast on him. Let's go ahead and read this passage. John chapter six, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread that the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we need you. We don't know how much we need you, and so we ask that your Spirit would open up our understanding of our desperate need for you. We thank you that you give yourself to us in your word. We ask through your Spirit that it would bless us, that it would convict us, and that it would strengthen us in the love that we have from you in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So first, Jesus inviting us to hunger for him. Our story begins with the crowd searching for Jesus. They've gotten into boats and they've crossed the other side because they don't know where Jesus is, but they think he's over there. And so they find him and they come up to him and they ask, where have you been? When did you get here? They are pursuing Jesus. But Jesus says, hey, you're looking for me for all the wrong reasons. He says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, the crowd is hungry for more food. I mean, they just came from this wonderful miracle where Jesus gave them more food than they could ever imagine, and they want more. Jesus is saying, look, you need to come to me because you saw what I can do, and you want to follow me. But rather, you're coming because your hunger is for food, and you think I can give you that. Jesus is inviting the crowd, and he's inviting us to recognize that we do have a hunger, but that that hunger needs to be for something deeper than anything this world can offer. It needs to be deeper for something that will truly satisfy what we desire in our souls. John's gospel describes this spiritual desire. This deep heart desire as a desire for life. A desire for life, not the kind of life that you might learn about in a biology book with bones and muscles, but life that's extravagant and exuberant and joyful and animated, that kind of life. We have a desire for life that's lived to the fullest. In John's gospel, you'll, you'll recognize words, he uses words like eternal life. Abundant life. These are the same thing. We have this desire within us, all of us, for abundant eternal life. In each of us, there is this hunger. The book of Ecclesiastes, this little uh, known book in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, the writer says that God has written on our hearts eternity that we have, we really do have a God-shaped hole in our soul. We were made for eternity. But we hunger for it and we find satisfaction in things that are far less than eternal. We've been conditioned throughout our lives to think that we can gain this abundant life. I mean, many people... I, and especially in this room, I think in the east side suburbs, we were conditioned to think, hey, grow up, get a good job, pay off your debt, start a family, buy a house, have some hobbies, have fun. That's the life. That's why you are in Mayfield Heights and not Tremont. Because you want this kind of life. You think that this kind of life is going to fulfill you. We have this hunger satisfaction. We we have this drive for fulfillment. But here's the thing. Do those things really satisfy us? I mean, they're good things. They are. I'm not saying don't have those things, but you have to ask yourself, is this really fulfilling me? I think the rise of drug abuse in our community, says that there's something that this world offers that isn't quite enough yet. I think the hopping from one thing to the next, whether it is a hobby to another hobby or just seeking out the next best thing, like the newest iPhone or the newest piece of technology, the newest car. I mean, I hear oftentimes people saying, I just want to move out further east. Is buying a new house out further east, going to satisfy you? No, I I don't think it will, because God has put eternity on our hearts, and anything less than something eternal won't fill it. They don't live up to that hunger that we crave. Growing up, down in Columbus, there was a restaurant that my family would go to pretty often, and it was my favorite restaurant as a kid. It was Macaroni Grill. Maybe you've gone there before too, and it was, it was a pleasure to go. I would request that we go on my birthday growing up, and I, I loved it, and there was one specific dish that I remember having for the first time, and I loved it. The penne rustica with this beautifully baked penne pasta with tender pieces of chicken and shrimp and pancetta. With this granatilla sauce. Oh, my mouth is just watering thinking about it. I loved it. And as soon as I had that first bite, I knew I didn't want to eat anything else in the world. And so the next time we went, I was just so excited. I want the penne rustica. And they brought it to me, and I took that bite, and it it wasn't as good. I thought maybe the chef was off that night, and they had the second chef cooking, and so I'll, I'll just chalk it up to that. Next time, it'll be better. But the next time, it wasn't. It's never been as good as that first bite. Have you ever had a dish that just in your memory is just the most perfect thing that you've ever had, and you've never been able to find anything that lived up to it? We were made for eternity. And until we find it, everything is just going to fall short of that desire. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. We were made for something more than what this world offers us. We're all hungry for eternal life. Jesus is inviting us to cultivate a hunger for him. You need to ask yourself, what are you hungry for? What are you desiring? What are you looking for? Jesus is inviting us to hunger for him. But he's not just inviting us to hunger for him. We see here also he's inviting us to rest in him. To rest in him. Jesus understands that our hunger for life can lead us to food that just doesn't satisfy. He even makes this comparison in verse 27. He says this, Do not work for food that will perish. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He's drawing this comparison between the things of this world that are good, but they will come to an end one day, and they can't satisfy you, versus the things of this world that are good, that are deeper than the world. They're sort of soul things, and those are the things that we should be working for that last into eternity. David Brooks, who is a New York Times opinion writer, he's written a number of great books. He wrote this in agreement with Jesus about this comparison. He, he talks about the things of this world that are good but don't last versus the things of this world that we ought to cultivate that continue on. He says this, about once a month, I run across a person who radiates with life, with inner light. These people can be in any walk of life, and they seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. When I meet such a person, it brightens my whole day. But I confess, I often have a sadder thought. It occurs to me that I have achieved a decent level of career success, but I have not achieved that inner life. I have not achieved that kind of generosity of spirit or that depth of character. He goes on and says this, it occurred to me that there are two sets of virtues in this world. There are resume virtues and there are eulogy virtues. The resume virtues, these are the skills that you bring to the marketplace. But there are eulogy virtues. These are the ones that are talked about at your funeral, the things of the soul, whether you were kind and brave, honest and faithful, whether you were capable of deep love. David, Brooks, and Jesus are in agreement. There are the things of the world that we define as resume virtues, and there are things of the world that we cultivate like eulogy virtues. This is the kind of food that we should desire because there is a kind of food that will perish it won't go with you into the next life but there are things to cultivate within you that inner life that will i think it's this desire for that inner light that david brooks talks about that leads people to religion It's this desire for the soul things, character, that lead people to religion, whether it is the Christian church or any other faith. It's because historically, religion has been where character is formed. Even people that grow up in the church and then leave, when they've got kids, they tend to come back to the church because they want to raise their kids to have character. And the crowd understands this link between religion and character, between religion and doing what will cultivate that inner life. Because they ask, Jesus, tell us, what are the things that we must do that God wants us to do? That's the whole thing about religion, right? Religion is saying God wants you to do this. And if you do this, then God will be pleased with you. You'll form the character that you want and God will be pleased with you. That's what religion says, right? That's what the crowds understood. Their question boiled down to this. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Have you ever asked that question? What, what does God want me to do? What must I do for God to obtain eternal life? Well, Jesus' answer it wasn't what the crowds expected, and maybe it's not what you expect either. He doesn't say, follow the law. He doesn't say, be nice to your neighbor. He says this in verse 29. The work of God is this, that you believe in him who he has sent. Believe in Jesus. That's the only thing you need to do. Believe in In Jesus. I love how one commentator defines this word believe in the Gospel of John. He says it means to relax in Him, it means to rest in Him, to stop working, stop striving for your acceptance, and fall back into the arms of Jesus. This commentator says the whole point of the Gospel of John is to create this relaxation. In Jesus. Jesus is inviting us to rest in him. This is the whole message of the gospel. We strive in our own abilities to try to make ourselves accepted by God. Whether that is through a successful career, raising a family, having good inner character. We try to make ourselves worthy of God's love. But the gospel says, You can't do that. But Jesus has done everything that you possibly want to do. He's done that on your behalf. He's lived that perfect life and has gained the acceptance that we so long for. And he says, take it. It's yours. Just rest in me. Rest in me. And we all know that, that feeling of rest, right? After a long day of work or with the kids, it's finally time to rest, and so you plop down on the couch, and you let out a sigh, resting. Or, or when you have gone grocery shopping, and you, you want to try to make it all in on one trip, and so you load up your hands with the bags, and you're walking in, and it's cutting off the circulation, and then you rest them on the counter, and you feel that relief. Resting is so nice. Would you fall back into the arms of Jesus? Here's why, though, I think that it's harder than that. Have any of you guys done a trust fall? Where you stand on a platform, you've got your arms crossed and your eyes closed, and they tell you to just lean back. It's scary because you want to believe that there are arms there to catch you, but you don't know for sure, right? That's why it's called a trust fall. It can be scary to collapse into the arms of Jesus because it requires you to stop pursuing life in other things and to lean back into the life that Jesus offers you. For some of you, that I mean, that means repenting of sin that you've been trapped in, and bringing that to the light and trusting Jesus to handle it. Some of you, it means reprioritizing the values that you have and the time that you spend on other things. Are you really trusting in the life that Jesus offers you, or are you pursuing it elsewhere? To rest in Jesus, it's so comforting, but it can be scary. And that's why Jesus invites us to do one more thing. So that we can trust him and know that when we fall back, he's there to catch us. Not only is he inviting us to hunger for him, and he's not just inviting us to rest in him, but finally we see that he is inviting us to feast on him. To feast on him. The crowds understand what you and I understand, that it is difficult to rest in Jesus. And so they ask him, Jesus, prove to us that you are trustworthy. Prove to us that you can do the thing that you are calling us to do. They say, give us a sign. What sign do you have that we may see and believe you, they say. And this is crazy because they're disregarding the fact that they just witnessed Jesus take five loaves of bread and two fish and supply enough food more than they could ever imagine. They are ignoring that and say, no, no, I, I don't know if I can trust you yet. What else do you have for me? Prove yourself. And they continue. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That, that's what our fathers have experienced. We know that that's happened in the past. What are you going to do now that we can trust in you? To understand what they're asking, you have to know this story. So back in the book of Exodus, God has liberated his people out of slavery. And they're wandering in the wilderness headed to the promised land, but they're in the wilderness. It is hot and dry and uncomfortable, and there's not much food. And they begin to grumble. They say, Moses, why did you lead us out here? There is no food for us to eat. It would be better for us back in slavery. And God sees their grumbling, and he cares for them despite that, and he gives them something like bread every morning that they gather up and eat. And they call it manna. And it, it, it didn't taste great, but it was enough for them. And they ate that every day. The Lord provided for them. What the crowd is asking, what the crowd is saying here is, I enjoy the life that I have. I know it's not everything it could be, but it's good. It's enough, but you tell me that there's something more. How do I know? Because I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. This is an important question. I hear this all the time. People ask, I've got the job. I've got the family. I've got my friends. I've got the hobbies. My life is pretty good. Why do I need you, Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? That's the question they're asking. Maybe you've asked that too. Maybe you know someone that's asked that. Why do I need Jesus? I've got it pretty good. But Jesus' response, it's wonderful. He says this in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread in the wilderness, but it was, sorry, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What Jesus is saying is this, whatever joy you feel now, whatever happiness you have in your life, Whatever, whatever you find life in now, you didn't do that for yourself. God, in his great mercy, the father of all gifts has given you that. But it's not everything that he wants to give you. There is something more. And he has come down from heaven. Even the joy that you experience now is just a glimpse of the life that God wants you to have in his son. Jesus is saying, Yes, your life is good, but follow me, and your life will be eternally better. Your desire for these things can be fulfilled in me. And so the crowd says, Give us this bread. Give it to us always. I want this. I want to be filled. I want the real thing. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the real deal. I am the one who has come down from heaven. I am the one who will not perish. I am the bread of life. Come to me and you will no longer hunger. Believe in me and you will no longer thirst. You will be fully satisfied. You will have life to the abundance. You will have life eternally. Jesus is saying, come and feast on me. We will never be hungry again. Because we know the source of life. We can have confidence that when we rest in the arms of Jesus, that when we come to him, we will never go hungry again. Because Jesus is eternal. This is the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And we know that when he rose from the dead, he rose back into heaven. Jesus is eternal. He was before all things. And in him, all things are held together. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he demonstrated that he is eternal by dying for your sin. Taking on himself the wrath of God and being raised to new life so that he will never die again. He Alone is eternal. And here's why we need him. The Apostle Paul says. That the wages of our sin. Is death. The, the wages of our sin. That means the payment that we deserve. For the work that we have done. Is death. We will perish. But. The free gift of grace, the free gift from God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the wages of your sin is death, but the free gift from God to be received by faith is eternal life because Jesus is eternal When we come and feast on him, we are filled up. That God-sized hole in our heart is filled because he is our eternal life. We can come to him and feast on him because he fully satisfies what our deepest hunger is for. So this morning, if you're not a Christian or you know someone who's not a Christian, This is what you need to do. Ask yourself, what are you hungering for? Is it something that will perish? Is it something that will just go away? Is it something that will fade away? Jesus invites you to cultivate a hunger for him. But if you are a Christian, are you holding on to something Are are you trying to find life in these other things in addition to your relationship with Jesus? He invites you to rest in him. Give it up, lay the bags on the counter and go rest in him. Maybe you haven't done that before and you need to do that for the first time. Trust that he is there to catch you when you fall back on him. But if you have rested in him, this invitation at the end is for you. Come and feast on him again and again and again. It's not that you'll no longer be hungry. It's that in your hunger, you know now the source that will satisfy you. Come to him again and again and feast on him. Worship him. Draw near to him in his word. Go to him in prayer. Commune with him in his body. He is here to fulfill you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son, the bread of life, to fill us, to give us life, to give us eternal life. Lord, we want to Leave the things of this world that do not satisfy us. And we want to pursue you. Lord, you've given us a hunger. You've given us a desire. We ask through your spirit that we would come again and again and be satisfied in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.